Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 29th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is stop solving the wrong problem. With me is Thomas Wettelsborg, the author of What's Your Problem? To Solve Your Toughest Problems, Change the Problems You Solve. The publisher is Harvard Business Review Press. Thomas is a two-time author with Harvard Business Press and has spent the last 15 years studying innovation and problem solving, working with companies all over the world. His work has been featured in The Economist, The Financial Times, and HR Magazine ranked him as a top 20 international thinker. Even better than that, Thomas recognizes that companies don't just have challenges and opportunities, Often they have problems, and sometimes, frankly, the problem is the person in charge of trying to solve the problem. Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me. Oh, look forward to it very much. So in brief, just kick it off for us. What is this book about? It's really about the art of solving the right problems. When you look at the, uh, the research into problem solving and the, and the practice of it as well, well, there's really two parts of it there's the solving part which people are fairly good at like once you give them a clear problem they they can kind of hack their way through solving it but then there's also what's in academia is called problem finding meaning the art of understanding what problems to solve and that's something most people are pretty horrific at horrific at and so uh what i try to do with my work and and my book is really to create a guide for uh for how to solve the right problems that that's kind of the the the, the book in a nutshell if you will Okay, and I, I know that's called the rapid reframing method, and I'll have some very specific questions about that. But I want to step back a bit and just talk about the role of emotions for a question or two here, mm-hmm. in particular because in chapter one you say much depends on our ability to question our own beliefs. I have to think that there are emotions that facilitate questioning those beliefs mm-hmm. and some emotions that get in the way of doing so. Can you just talk to me about that? I would say that, of course, when, whenever you're faced with a problem where you have to rethink some of your own assumptions, there's a measure of humility involved in that. There's a measure of um, maybe having had the experience in the past that your intuition about something isn't always correct. And I find it's very interesting, for instance, if I, if I pose a problem to people and they get the answer wrong, um, there are some people who embrace that. They react with curiosity and say, hey, why did I get this wrong? Let, let me learn something here. And then there are people who double down on their certainty and try to find some creative angle on the problem uh, with which they can argue that they were right all along. And as you can probably sense, I'm kind of more in the camp of um, if, if you're not open to recognizing that you can be wrong sometimes, that your intuition isn't infallible, 
uh, then you're never going to learn, and that that's that's probably not a good thing. So so I I think that's really crucial in 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 the context of problem solving to to monitor your own humility and your ability to be wrong. Okay, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I can certainly see the humility. Uh, I admit the word embarrassment <laughs> occasionally comes up as well if one is the person who maybe created the problem and hasn't gotten to a solution previously. When you mention resistance, I probably think of frustration yeah. or anger because anger, you want to be in control of your destiny. The, the one other emotion I thought was interesting here potentially is anxiety because you can yeah. freeze in the moment, you want to talk about anxieties? You, you seem to acknowledge pretty quickly that is very, here. very much so. I mean, th- this is to me so interesting because I I used to work a lot, uh, still do, with innovation. And innovation, there's this whole uh, kind of happy-go-lucky mythology around it, where you're supposed to be, oh, this is going to be super fun and invigorating, yeah, and so on. Sure. And that's not the case in the real world. I mean, when whenever you're trying to do something new, whenever you're trying to solve a, a tough problem. There's gonna be uh, apprehension. There's gonna be hesitation, anxiety, and so on. And I think one of the things that characterizes good problem solvers is that they're okay with that. That they, they, they are comfortable with the idea of feeling uncomfortable for a while. Uh, Roger Martin, who's done a good deal of study on what he calls integrative thinking, have found the same thing that that good problem solvers, good innovators, tend to be like less resistant to feeling discomfort when they're when they're trying to engage with something new so very 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 true okay and that, that's one of the things i think is really fascinating to me about innovation because on one side you need to be curious as you said a moment ago the eyes go wide you're paying attention you're looking for those wows those aha moments and then you have anxiety but you have to be comfortable with the anxiety and yet push yourself into anxiety and Fear and surprise are really very similar emotions in a lot of ways mm. in terms of certainly how they show on the face. Um, so, yeah, you know, everyone has to navigate that. There's a razor's edge there that yeah. I think is really fascinating. Um, still speaking about emotions and still te- speaking about your process, you mentioned that, and that this makes complete sense to me, people will beg off saying they don't have the time to reframe. Mm. Can you talk to me about that? It's a um, the, the, like the, the classical conundrum is here that you have a problem, and you have the sense that this problem isn't defined correctly. Like that there 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 there's something off about the way you are thinking about the problem, you and your team. And so what happens is you you tell your team, hey, I think we actually need to challenge our assumptions here. And people's answer is, uh, we don't have time for that. Like let let's keep moving and move forward. I think the big fallacy we, we have committed here in when you think of how to do problem solving in practice is to assume that we always have to create the time for a deep dive analysis. Like whenever you have a problem, we need to find the time to go off to the mountains for a week and think deep thoughts <laughs> about the problems and like come back with revelations. Like that's not how it works in the re- in the real world. I, w- one of the key things I found in in working with this and practicing companies is this is not about making time for the method. It's actually about making the method you use nimble enough to be used in five, 10 minutes. I mean, that five, 10 minutes, you can spare that as part of a regular Wednesday afternoon meeting. The second you think that you have to go off to the mountains, you're just never going to use it. Uh, so so really, really I've, I've, it's almost an instance of reframing the problem of problem solving. Like, what do we need to think differently about? It's not always about finding the time. It's about being capable of doing it in the time you are provided. 
Sure. For instance, I'll admit that when I'm trying to solve a problem, mowing the yard, which does not take a lot of time, I do not have a mansion, can be enough time. It's a, such a boring task that it frees me up to you know, think through some issue I've got. And that, you know, that may be 10 minutes to yeah. get that done. Staying with this whole notion of people saying they don't have time to reframe it. If I can just go a little bit further, you mentioned two types, closure avoiding people yeah. and closure seeking people. Can you just elaborate on that? So uh, this is a concept from uh, research as well. And essentially, it, it speaks to your comfort level with ambiguity and keeping things open-ended. There are people who are closure avoidant, meaning they hate having closure on things. They hate just making a decision and moving forward. The, on the other end of that spectrum, we have people who uh, love having to do that. That they, they get off on making a quick decision and, and, and keeping you know, the steam of, uh, full on uh, forward motion, if, if you will. I think both of those can be problematic. Uh, the the evident case is if people are too fast at decision making, they don't take those five ten minutes to try to rethink what they're doing or what problem they're facing or what problem their customers really care about, if you will. On the other end, like and this is especially dangerous for academics. Um, there are people who have a tendency to really they enjoy you know being in the realm of uncertainty and multiple options and considerations and so on. And you have to realize at some point you just have to move forward. Like there, there's no, you're not going to make progress unless you at least try to take a couple of steps forward uh, when when you're struggling with a problem. Otherwise, you end up in in kind of endless rumination, if you will. Yeah, no, no. I, I remember having a VP who I, I swore was afraid of his own shadow. I mean, it was a complete <laughs> case of paralysis by analysis. Yeah. On the other hand, as you're as you're suggesting here, to be almost addicted to action can be. Anger again. Anger is about wanting to make, be in control of your life, to make progress, to push forward. But an emotion like sadness actually causes you to stop and reflect and ponder things, and you know some balance in there is nice. There was one other emotion that you did bring up, which I think was really fair because when you talked about humility earlier, mm. part of this process involves vulnerability. Yeah. And you talked about the importance of not showing condescension toward the client that you, for instance, might be working with. Yeah. So that's that's the last place I wanted to touch on emotion here before we dive well, in. Well, yeah, yeah, I would add, I'm, I mean, there's almost two, I, I'm tempted to, to throw uh, trust on top of that, but like, sure. I, I, I'd say, yeah, there, there is such an easy answer when you're facing people in your life, whether they're clients or partners or whatever, who's causing you trouble. It's so easy to just slip into this, well, they're also, they're just idiots or they're just egotistical or they're just out to see the world burn or whatever these like negative stereotypes we we so easily fall into with people and you have to go beyond that it it feels alluring to just say oh my clients just super risk averse uh you often when you go beyond that you start getting a better understanding of what's behind their resistance or or reluctance um okay yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, since uh, since we are on, on the topic of emotion, because I I'm sure, sure you may you may have seen this too, like the role trust plays when when you're dealing with a problem, and this is one of my my uh, my advice in the book is to go in and say, when you have a problem, go in try to gather a few people who can help you rethink that problem, and some people think you need to have trust in order to do that. I've actually found that it's the other way around. That just the f- by virtue of sharing a problem with people, you start to create trust in the group. 
so that there are some really interesting dynamics around trust and vulnerability uh, when it comes to that. It, it sounds like you have seen that that with your work as well, Dan. Yeah, no, when, when I was reading your book and this whole thing about trust and condescension kind of came up into my mind, I, I had this image of four people skydiving and they're all holding hands mm. after they've jumped out of the plane. Because, you, you know, you're in this together, but you do have to solve something. You don't want to land splat on the earth down below. So you need to make some progress. Yeah. And uh, sooner than later would be a good idea. Um, speaking of change, because that's what we're talking about here in no small part, you have a pretty striking statistic, which makes a lot of sense to me, that 2.5% of people like to be guinea pigs for new things. And your process is about getting to new things. What are some of the, you know, and we may have already touched on some of these, but is there a couple of key misconceptions, hangups, failures regarding your rapid reframing method that we haven't addressed so far? Um, I would say, I mean, the, the statistic you mentioned is uh, that's from uh, the classic work on diffusion of innovations by Everett Rogers. Uh, and one of his findings was that, you know, the, there's a misconception that, that people sometimes like to try new things. They generally don't. It's, it's only about those like two, one out of 25 people get excited by trying something new. Almost everybody else wants something that they are, they've seen other people use it successfully, or they, they've seen some kind of indication that it, that it works or what, whatever it is, they need some kind of assurance that they're not just like stuck starting to do something that fails. And I think the way I linked this to problem solving is um, you can't ask people to do two complex things. Like, you know, if, if you want people to change what they do around problem solving, it has to be pretty simple. It, it has to be something that they feel comfortable doing or trying. Uh, it can't be like the rollout of a big 50-piece framework uh, and so on. Th those are, they tend to fail unless you spend a ton of energy on, on, on kind of disseminating that properly. So, so one of the big aha moments for me in writing the book was really, the, the recognition of the need to keep things super, super simple in order for it to work and to be adopted by, uh, by people in, in, a, in the setting of an everyday job, if you will. Okay. And so I think on behalf of, of listeners here, and it's true, you don't have a 40-step method. You have something much shorter than that. Maybe you should give us, without taking too much time, but you should give people, I think, a, a top line so they get oriented to what your method actually yeah. is. Yeah. I, I presented that as a three-step habit, really. Uh, and the first thing you do when you have a problem is to frame it. And with that, I mean just describe the problem. It could be in a couple of sentences separate from the solution. That is what triggers the process, and that's what's keeping what deliberately keeps people from jumping too quickly into solution mode. Uh, otherwise, if you don't describe the problem separately from the solution, people will often kind of retroactively define the problem, depending on the solution they've fallen in love with. Like we, a marketing head wants to increase the marketing budget and so defines the problem as we don't have enough money for marketing. And maybe when you dig, dig deeper into that, there's actually an issue with the product or service where additional marketing won't help until we have fixed that issue. So the first simple step is just whenever you have a problem, write it down or share it with somebody else in a couple of sentences. Um, second part is the reframing, and we, we can go into that a little bit more in depth once I've summarized the framework, but that's really where you go in and try to rethink the nature of the problem, ideally with a couple of other people. And then at the end of that, the, thir the third and last step is to decide how to move forward. And that, that's really 
to avoid what we spoke about earlier with paralysis by analysis, that, that people don't get stuck in too many deliberations, but keep momentum in, in their problem-solving efforts, if you will. So okay. in some three steps, frame the problem, reframe it with a couple of other people, and then decide how to move forward. Okay, and then let's go back to that middle one, the reframing, because I think it's, it, this begs a chance for you to go a little bit deeper on that. Yeah, uh, so this is fascinating to me because there's been, uh, in a sense, reframing is not a new concept at all. Like we've, you know, Einstein spoke about it, Peter Drucker. Uh, it, back in the 60s, uh, we see the first empirical evidence for the fact that people who are oriented towards rethinking their, the problem they're facing, they tend to have greater success as well. And so what's so fascinating to me is despite us having looked at this and studied it for more than 50 years, it's still something most people don't do well. And so what I've tried to do in my work is really to create some fairly simple heuristics or rules of thumb or what you will for going in and getting better at rethinking problems. So, so the essence of it really is to go in and say, um, how can we get better at asking questions about a problem so we start seeing new angles on it? So let's go back to step number two. That seems really essential. Can you kind of unpack for me what's going on in step two? So what's so fascinating to me about reframing a problem is that we've actually known about it for a long time. So uh, Albert Einstein spoke about it. Peter Drucker spoke about it. In the 60s, uh, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi and Jacob Gessels do the first empirical studies, finding basically that people who are people who pay attention to the problem as well as the solution and try to rethink the nature of the problem, they tend to be more successful. And yet, despite having known about this and studied it for 50 years plus, people are still bad at it. Like, and, and so what I've tried to do in my book is really to develop a, a set of questioning strategies, if you will, understanding what questions to ask in order to arrive at new uh, perspectives on a problem. And that's really because I found it's great to ask questions, but not all questions are equally strong. Like that classic about just asking why five times is actually not always productive because that makes you just dig deeper into your first definition of the problem as compared to trying to really rethink it. So, uh, and we, we can delve into some of these or share examples of them, but really I've, I've arrived at, at uh, kind of five different questioning strategies for how to get better at quickly challenging your understanding of a problem, if you will. Sure. And I've been in my career in the market research field where it gets really boring people to say, and why do you give that answer? And why do you give that answer? And yeah. eventually you see the subject just freeze because you're, you're asking them to work so hard and they stress out and they just close down. Yeah. You, you mentioned in the, the book that people-related problems are often the most potent for reframing purposes. I'd be interested in both in why that's true and also if you see a difference by gender in how people-related problems get handled. I think there's, uh, as to why this is the case, it's when you think about what reframing is, it's really about looking at a problem as being multi-causal and having many different causes. Now, that tends to be true for social problems, for leadership problems, sometimes for strategy problems and whatnot. It tends to be less true for very mechanical things. Like, you know, if you're out driving and your car has a flat tire, well, there's really a limited number of ways in which you can change your perspective on, 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 on that problem. Uh, so 
I found this to be most potent in those types of problems that we most often have, namely, you know, at work, you don't have a good dynamic with your boss or your team is being problematic or you're, you're dealing with a difficult client or, you know, at home, your children are being pests <laughs> and not, aren't, aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing or, sure. or whatever it is. So, so it's really, I found more fruitful in that arena. Um, now you, you asked about gender as well. What what prompted you to uh, to, to bring up the the gender perspective here? Have have you seen that yourself or? Well, I, I think one is you know we talk about being uh, action addicted people. Uh, I think guys tend to have a little more tendency toward anger, which is an emotion that might fuel that action addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to be in control. They often still are more often in control. Maybe not as managers, but as the executives within a company. Yeah. So, uh, you know, um, you know, I, I just was curious to see if you have seen as you've worked around the world um, and I, I, we can go by region as well as by gender. I'm just interested in yeah. ways in which the dynamic plays out differently just because nothing's monolithic in the world. And yeah. um, those differences but can be fascinating. I, I should presage this by saying this is not something I've done actual research on. Uh, so I'm not sure if there is a gender uh, kind of difference here. I would say, you know, from an anecdotal perspective, uh, I, I think you're you're right, and there's I think women can actually sometimes be better at this because there's a little bit more of a tendency to try to understand a problem before solving it. Uh, that that that's like, you know, that it's a stereotype, but maybe it's a stereotype for a reason that that uh, men tend to be very well. Why don't you just do this? And women can be a little bit better at at kind of rethinking it. Overall, I'd say, though, I, the, the key thing that stands out from the research is that diversity matters. Uh, so if you have a group that's only male or, for that matter, only female or only from one culture or only of, in one specific discipline or whatever, your problem-solving efforts will be less powerful because you don't have people in the group who have a different perspective on the problem by virtue of having a different way of thinking or a different background or whatever it is. So I'm less focused on gender as such and more focused on the problem, the people who as a team try to problem solve. Do they have diversity in there or are they all, you know, is it all a bunch of finance people sitting and trying to figure things out by themselves or, or whatever it is? That That's a very tactical kind of thing. The, the more important your problem is to solve, the more effort you should put into getting people who think differently to discuss the nature of the problem with you. Okay. And the diversity of the group that's you know working on this reframing, does it also matter that they either reflect or have a good sense of what could be as well variety in the stakeholders related to the problem? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the basic things. And I think, you know, the, the design thinking field, for instance, has been good at teaching people, hey, you actually need to involve or at least really understand the, the stakeholders really well. Because we, again, we're so fast at assuming we know what our customers want. And very often that's not the case. Uh, that also applies to collaborators, to, uh, you know, other people inside the company. Basically, whoever we work with to solve a problem, uh, you need to get those people's perspectives into it, not just assuming that you understand what they're about. Okay. You mentioned in the book, uh, there's a wonderful statement, you say, vagueness is the enemy of change. Mm. Uh, can you elaborate? Uh, this is a classic finding from uh, be- like behavior change. Uh, what does it take to make people change their behavior? Well, the more specific and actionable 
you can make the recommendation, the larger the likelihood that people are going to change. Like the classic study is this thing about, I think it's a, a research team trying to get people to donate blood. And the key uh, difference they do in, in, in the letter they send to people is they include a guide for how to get to the place uh, where they can donate blood. And, and that just tremendously increases the number of people who actually get it done. So that, that's one of the classics we know. You, you need to, if there's a change you want to affect, it's not enough to say, oh, you should eat healthier. You need to say, uh, this is a, an example from uh, Chip and Dan Heath's work. You, you need to say, scrape the bread when you butter it you know so so you make sure you don't have too much butter on your toast like it has to be very very specific something people can see in their minds when you do it okay and i mean so you've you've gotten a little bit into particular challenges that this method has worked with you do also mention people have favorite hammers and they like to use it over and over and everything becomes a nail do you want to give us a Example of a few frustrations dealing with clients who had hammers that created limitations without naming names. Yeah, well, I mean, we we all come in with specific uh, angles. So, so my the, the favorite example I I love to use to illustrate this is what I call the slow elevator problem. And that's a it's really this notion that you are the owner of an office building, and that the tenants in the building they're complaining about the speed of the elevator. Now, there's a specific breed of people. Let's invent a hypothetical term and call them engineers <laughs> who are they, they, they are prone to see it of course as an engineering challenge and then they ask well you know what's the capacity of the elevator how can we potentially speed it up and so on and then sometimes if you let in people who use different hammers if you will you can open up new perspectives and the classic example here is you know ask either a psychologist or a uh, just an experienced landlord and they will tell you hey why don't you try putting up mirrors next to the elevator because what happens of course is that people go i'm busy i'm busy then they look up they see themselves in the mirror they fall in love they forget time and they're like just blissfully unaware of their their anger around waiting the core thing is here when we're talking about this thing with hammers we all come into situations with a specific set of tools that have worked for us before. That's They become our hammer, like everything you see is a hammer, is a nail. Um, they become our favorite hammers and they do so for a reason. So that it's not inherently wrong to have favorite tools or approaches to problems. It's more about the recognition that if that tool doesn't turn out to work, stop using it. <laughs> like the, You'll see people again and again kind of Okay, this is not working. What if I try pushing a little bit harder in the in the same direction? I mean, it 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 to me is striking that people are not capable of letting go of their hammers or or taking in other people's perspectives and like using different tools with a problem instead of just clinging to to what they know best. Sure. Well, at one point you you get to use this with young children. It was up in Connecticut, and the problem one kid said, "I want the other kids rock." Uh, you know, we may think we grow up, but I'm not sure we do. Oh. And that's one thing I really love about the book, which, by the way, listeners should know that this is a book that is nicely illustrated, very accessible in its writing style. It's really a delight to read. But as you take it from individual problems and learning the method, one of the things I think was also great was that it expands out to your entire career. Because you mentioned at one point three top skills that the World Economic Forum thinks are important in the mm. future. How does your method you know, build into that? How does it aid 
trying to increase your skill set overall as a, a thinker and a problem solver? It's really when you think about it, uh, everybody in a sense are problem solvers. Uh, we all face problems all the time. And it, one thing that's for, for certain about the world we live in right now, nobody's short of problems. Like we all face new problems on a weekly, if not daily basis. And the better you can become at diagnosing what problems to solve, uh, the bigger a difference you can make. Because if, well, if, if you are kind of attacking the right problem already and you're kind of getting the solution a little bit wrong, yeah, you're probably going to get it right eventually. But if you are backing up the wrong tree in the first place, uh, then it doesn't matter how, how much effort you put into your execution or your, prob- your problem solving, uh, you're still not really going to get anywhere. So it's really a question that this method, this reframing technique, uh, it's an, at a weird intersection of problem solving and innovation. It allows you both to make sure you're solving the right problems. And like the example of the elevator I shared, it sometimes allows you to find new surprising or creative ways to attack a problem you may have had for a long time. Uh, so okay. that, that's, I think, the, the gist of it. The gist of it. Okay. Um, so a last question here before we wrap up. Yeah, this is kind of a, an open-minded book. That's what it's advocating for, as you said, pr- handling both innovation and problem solving at the same time. So I'm just going to throw out a blue sky question. What is something we haven't covered in this discussion, something you know, similar to the book that you want to make sure you get in here. I think the importance of not digging deeper into problems, like everybody's intuition is when they face a problem, they start trying to understand the details like, oh, the elevator's slow. Why is the elevator slow? And the problem is there, you get trapped in that first framing of the problem. So, so instead of training yourself to dig deeper immediately, you actually need to develop a habit of trying to mentally step back from the problem and trying to consider, well, is this really about the speed of the elevator or is there something else going on that we could we could consider or look at with the problem? Uh, that That's probably a, re- a really core takeaway that I think is, is crucial in avoiding this era of just digging deeper into the first problem you, you run into. Okay, fair enough. I want to thank you, Thomas, so much for being on the show. Uh, This has been episode number 29, Stop Solving the Wrong Problem. My guest, Thomas Wettelsborg, the author of What's Your Problem? To Solve Your Toughest Problems, Challenge the Problems You Solve. To check out other episodes or my books or other activities, please visit my company's website at www.sensorylogic.com. If you've got a follow-up question for Thomas, uh, feel free to email me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating or review on iTunes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. Uh, You've already cited Albert Einstein earlier. He has one of the seminal statements on uh, problem solving, but I think it really fits the nature of your book. He He wrote, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.